0: Welcome to this week's podcast, at Bergen Park Church from Evergreen, Colorado. We hope you enjoy this message, and if you'd like to hear any more or learn more about the church, please visit bergenparkchurch.org. Well, hey, good morning. Welcome to Bergen Park. We're glad you gathered with us this Sunday. You know, as I was listening to that song, you know, I kept, I kept thinking those words that Jesus was a man of sorrows and he was familiar with suffering. You know, on two occasions, Jesus wept at Lazarus when his friend had died, even though he knew he was going to raise him. I mean, that seems, I don't know, if I knew I was going to raise Lazarus from the dead, I'd be like, listen, guys, this is is not a funeral. You're about to see something absolutely, it's going to blow your socks off, it's going to be amazing, and yet Jesus weeps because he knows the brokenness of life, that sin happens and death happens, and so Jesus wept. But also when he looked at Jerusalem, he looked at this city, and he said, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you know how I wished I could take you under my wing. And Jesus wept over the city. And I was, I was thinking that song, you know, I got a counselor. I, I've been going to a counselor the last year and a half. It's not a bad idea, guys. It's not a bad idea. And one of the things he said to me, and it's taken about a year and a half to get this, he goes, You don't do sadness well. You know, and if you don't do sadness well, here's what happens. then then the Lord isn't able to be your comforter. He's not able to heal. He's not able to restore. And if you don't do sadness well, then when you move out into the world, all the stuff that's happened, all the stuff that that grieves your heart, you're gonna walk out and you're just gonna take that into the world and bring it on others. See, but when we are honest with our Father, when we reflect on what's happened either to our nation, to ourselves, to those that we love, and we allow the Father to meet us in that place of mourning and grief, he gives us comfort comfort. He gives us strength, so that we can go out to the world, not in hatred, but with the good news of the gospel, to raise others up and to love our enemies as ourselves. But we gotta let him in, into the happy moments, into the sad moments, into the joys and the hardships of life. You know, that's what the book of Ecclesiastes is about. It's about taking us to someplace we don't wanna go. And every single week, he keeps taking me there But see, it's my fault because I chose that book. And in the book of Ecclesiastes, he's constantly showing us these moments of life, questions that we want to ignore. Now, we may ask the questions once or twice, you know, what's the purpose of life? or Why does injustice happen? Why does oppression happen? But we we tend not to talk about those things. We tend to ignore them, and so when the emotions come, we kind of shove them back in. Because, you know, as men, at least, that's what we're taught to do. Emotions are not to be expressed or shared. It's supposed to be kind of shoved down in. In the book of Ecclesiastes, I mean, this guy is just letting it all out. And he's saying, you know, life is hell. It's fleeting. It's, it's oppressive at times. It's hard to get your, your mind and your arms around. And in chapter four, what we're going to look at today is he's looking specifically at our work. And he's gonna describe the way that we approach work in a way that leads, kind of leads to frustration and it actually tears community down, it tears our nation down, it tears our neighbor down or we can pursue work in a way that leads to life. We can either have one hand full and one hand open to the Father or we can have two hands full and have our ears shut off, our hearts shut off, our minds shut off to what God is saying to us. So let's jump into it in Ecclesiastes chapter four. I hope you have a Bible, if you don't, there is one in front of you and we'd encourage you to take one. You can take it home if you don't have that particular translation. Hey, that's a gift from us to you and so please uh, take that home with you. We're gonna be in Ecclesiastes chapter four and we will pick it up in verse four. Here we go. And then I saw all the toil and all the skill in work. It comes from a man's envy of his neighbor. Now, this is vanity. It's hevel. It's a striving after the wind. For the fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh, but better is a handful of quietness than two handfuls of toil and a striving after the wind. Now, again, I, I saw under the sun... I saw a vanity. There was one person, and he had no other, neither son nor brother, and yet there was no end to all his toil, all his work. <laughs> That's all right, we got grace. <laughs> and his eyes are never satisfied with riches, <laughs> so that he never asks, From whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? This also is Hevel. It's an unhappy business. For two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will rise up and help his fellow. But woe to the one who is alone when he falls. He has no one else to help him up. Again, if two lie down together, they can keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? And although a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him, and a three-four cord is not quickly broken. Better is a poor and wise youth than an old and foolish king, who no longer knew how to take advice. For he went from prison to the throne, though in his own kingdom he had been born poor. And I saw all the living who move about under the sun along with that youth who was standing in the king's place. There was no end to all the people and all of whom he led, yet those who come later will not rejoice in him. Surely this also is vanity and a striving after the wind. This is the word of the Lord. All thanks be to God. Father, would you teach us? Lord, on this anniversary of 9-11, we, we grieve with those who grieve. We mourn with those who mourn. And Father, in inviting you into that place of grief and mourning, you transform us to be comforters and to be the hands and the feet of Jesus that goes out to a world that is broken, that is tired, that is weary. To introduce them to one whose yoke is easy and whose burden is easy is light. Jesus, may we experience your heart for us today, the one who is lowly and humble in heart, and would we find rest today for our souls. Lead us into your presence, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So there is a moment in Matthew chapter 20 that if it happened to any of us, I don't think we could show up our faces. I don't, I think we'd walk in shame. See, in Matthew chapter 20, there's a story about the disciples. And James and John's mommy went to Jesus. Could you imagine your mommy going to your boss? Mr. Jones, you know my son. And he needs to be at your right hand. How would you feel? <laughs> It's like, mom, serious. What are you doing? But see, in Jesus' day, you know what that's called? Smart. Because, see, they respected their elders. And more than likely, the mom of James and John was well-known by Jesus. And so she comes to Jesus and says, you know, my boys, you know the sons of thunder, James and John. Hey, let them sit at your left and right when you come into Jerusalem with power. And what's everybody else thinking? Man, I wish I sent my mommy. (laughs) They were envious, right? Because see, they hadn't gotten it. It's chapter 20, Gospel of Matthew. They think that Jesus is still about power, about coming into Jerusalem with power to rule over those who were making their life miserable. They thought they had a grasp on who Jesus was. And see, they didn't understand what Jesus says in 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 Matthew 20 is that the greatest of all should be your servant. That power isn't expressed by what seat you're in, but by who you serve. And in the hearts of the disciples, what came out was this seed of envy. And if you look back at Ecclesiastes 4 and in verse 4, the writer of Ecclesiastes looks out at the world and says, you know what's wrong with our work? You know what's wrong with our toil? It's the envy that we have for our neighbor. And see, that's where the disciples are, aren't they? Who's their neighbor? James and John, Thaddeus, Matthew, the the group. And here they are together walking with Jesus in community and love, and yet they have envy for one another. They wanna have power and authority over each other because there's this seed of envy in all of us. It's what took down this angel that knew the glory of God, knew the joy of being in his presence, and his name was Satan, and he fell like lightning because there was this seed of envy in his heart. You see it early on, Cain was envious towards his brother Abel, and what did he do? He killed his neighbor, Saul, King Saul. David, rise up, David's better looking, he's smarter, he's faster, he's younger. What happens? The seed of envy takes over his heart, and he attacks David. And then the Apostle Paul says, even in the church, you know, often I will pray, God, do something great. But you know how I always finish that phrase? But do it through me. Why? I don't want God just to do something great. I want him to do it through me. Because see, I look out at the world and I see God doing great things through different people and what it rises up in us, doesn't it? It's not just praise. Pastors have it. CEOs have it. Listen, parents have it. Why is that kid playing in the time that my kid, my kid should be playing? I mean, this, he's a mad dog. Why is that kid playing? Teachers, you get angry at teachers. Why, is, why doesn't that teacher recognize my daughter? She's got it together. And it rises up in the heart. What the writer Ecclesiastes is saying is God's given us something incredibly good. It's called work. And in Genesis 1, God created all things good and he gave us the ability to bring out of chaos something beautiful that would reflect him. But instead of doing it for we, sin caused us to do it for me. And in that moment, the beauty, the image of God, the fullness of who God is was distorted within us, and our work became about upward advancement at any cost. At any cost. Because, see, God has placed eternity in our hearts. I don't know if you remember that last week in Ecclesiastes 3 He's placed eternity in our hearts. Part of what that means is we know that there's a home that we belong in, a home where we are right with God, and we're right with each other, and we're right with our work, and we're right with creation. And sometimes what we try to do is we try to make things right through what we can do, to try to establish a little bit of home today. And often the way that we do that is through our work, that through what we do with our hands, through what we build, what we can accomplish, we're trying to get Eden back. Do you feel that? We're trying to restore something. And see, in chapter one, he says, what is crooked, it can't be made straight at least not by me. But what are we trying to do? We're trying to straighten. We're trying to straighten it out. (laughs) We're trying to straighten people out and systems out so that we can make the world right. Because see, internally, we know in our hearts we belong with God and we belong in this place called Eden. But life is broken and through our labor and our work, we're trying to gain a piece of that back. But what we're doing, notice again, verse four, we're doing it at the expense of who? Our neighbor. Our neighbor. Now, I don't know if you realize that word neighbor in verse four is pretty important in scripture. Jesus talked a little bit, I think, about neighbors. And actually, every single day, a Jewish man, woman would get up and say, Hero, Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And we shall love the Lord our God with our heart, soul, mind, strength. And then what? Love our neighbor. I was looking, the verse was there, right? You guys were there, like, <laughs> oh, there it is. <laughs> love our neighbor as ourself. And then Jesus comes along and says, guys, you wanna, know, you wanna know how your love for God gets manifest? By how you love your neighbor. But what he says in verse four is that, I'm looking at the work, and so when you see this word toil, you see, you, you're really seeing the word work. Then I see all this work and skill that come from simply a man's envy of his neighbor. And he says, this is heaven. why? Because see, God created us to work. But see, when we, he created us to work, it was to glorify him and to bring benefits to our neighbor, not just to us. And when we're just working for us, work becomes heaven. Because see, imagine this. In the character of God are all the gifts in this room. I mean, Jesus said we're the body of Christ, right? Which means in this room, we got it together. On this stage, we don't. So do not expect me to be everything to everyone. Because see, I'm just one gift. I'm not as compassionate as I need to be. I don't listen as well as I need to, but here's what I know. In this room, there is enough compassion. In this room, there is enough counselors. In this room, We are the fullness of Christ because all of the gifts dwell in us. And see, in God are all the gifts that we have. So if you build, if you construct, if you're an entrepreneur and you love to put things together, where does that come from? It comes from the heart of God. God builds. And we're supposed to build to the glory and the image of God, but for the benefit of who? Not me, but we. We got any doctors, nurses, counselors, social workers? They are the healing and the mercy of God. They image God's character and glorify him by taking God's mercy and healing out into the world, but not for the benefit of me, but we. Every single profession, parents, we care, we nurture. That caring and nurturing, it comes from the heart of God. We build, we develop, we grow We invest, we pour out our heart to glorify God for the benefit, and this is where we need to stop. Capitalism's good. I'm glad to be in a capitalistic system. See, in capitalism, we're just comparing individuals to individuals, companies to companies, And, and I like that system, but it's not perfect because, see, capitalism says, no, it's me, not we. The gospel says, no, it is we and not me. When Jesus reconciled us to God, he also reconciled us to each other. And so the writer of Ecclesiastes, we're gonna jump into it, I know it's a long introduction, but it's trying to lay a foundation and a shift in the way we think about how we work, the way we see the world, and the way we see the people around us. That you can advance for me and accomplish great things, but if it's at the cost of others, then the writer of Ecclesiastes and God himself is saying that's not gonna be Eden, you're not gonna find your home there it's gonna be futile. So let's jump back in and kinda uh, open this up. So you guys ready? Uh, Take a deep breath, okay? That's a lot, I know. But watch this, verse five, there's three ways that we can approach our work. He says, first of all, the fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh, but better is a handful of quietness than two handfuls of toil and a striving after the wind. So three ways we can approach work. One is by putting our hands together and doing nothing. Or we can take two hands, and that's called envy. So the first is called, you know this, laziness, sloth. When you have two handfuls, well, that's called workaholism, It's envy. It means every, I just saw a couple elbows there. That's all right. You know, I'm ADD, guys, so you move, you do something, it's like, okay, don't move, honey, don't, don't, anyways. And then one handful full of work and one handful of quietness, well, see, that's called contentment. And what he does is basically in verses seven and following, he's gonna unpack what two handfuls look like and where it takes us. So watch this, verse seven. So here's where two handfuls take you. Again, I saw a vanity under the sun. One person who has no other, either son or brother, yet there is no end to all his toil. And his eyes are never satisfied with riches, so he never asks, do you notice that? Never, Never asks himself, why am I doing this? Why am I working so hard? What do I think I'm gonna accomplish? I'm just kinda reading into it myself there. But for whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? I remember having a conversation with a dear friend in Texas. And we get together for coffee often. This guy was amazing in terms of uh, just, he was present. You know those guys, they're just always, always present. And he was an overachiever. You just knew it from the way he talked, the way he moved. He, was, he just had it together. And I remember we sat down one time and we were having coffee together and he said, you know, Jason, uh, I just got a call from my boss because I could tell something was heavy. And he said, listen, he just gave me a promotion. I was like, well, that's, what, that's awesome, isn't it? I mean, isn't that, isn't that what you wanted? You wanted to be in that next position. But he said, but wait a minute, wait a minute. I know the guy that did that job. I know what his family life is like. I know the time that he spent. I know how much he invested. If I take that opportunity, my life is done. Because see, work is not my life. One of the things that happens when we're trying to recover Eden through our work is we put our identity in our work rather than in our God and we try to reclaim who we are through what we've accomplished and what we've done. And listen, work, again, is a good thing. It's an honorable thing. It's a beautiful thing. But here's what he's describing in verse seven is somebody that's given himself to work, and as a result, the relationships in his life, they don't have the time. There's no opportunity to cultivate because he's exchanged that upward mobility for solidarity. And so what he does is in verse 13, actually if we jump down, there's a bit of a parable and he explains what this looks like. And so in verse 13, he says, better a poor and wise youth than an old and foolish king who can no longer take advice. Now, that old and foolish king was probably once a wise youth and that's how he became king. See, he rose to a position of power and how did he rise to a position of power? Because he listened He had people in his life that helped him, served him, got him there, but when he got there, he forgot what got him there. And suddenly, a wise youth that was just like himself, who was willing to listen to others, starts rising up. And what does he do when he sees that wise youth coming into his position? He has envy towards his neighbor. But notice what happens. For he went from prison, and this is describing the young youth, he went from prison to the throne, though in his own kingdom he had been poor, verse uh, 15, and I saw the living who move about under the sun along with that youth who is standing now in the king's place, so he had replaced the king, and there was no end to all the people. All whom he had led, meaning he had plenty to do, yet notice, even for the youth, the young man that rises up; those who come later will not rejoice in him. Surely, this is also a vanity and a striving after the wind. He's saying, if you're working to be remembered, you're not going to be remembered. If you're working to gain an identity, that identity is fleeting. Because, see, what's the point of this parable? Is this was someone? This young man was someone who was in community and he was willing to listen. But this king who had risen to a position of power through his work, he had shut himself off from community and he had stopped listening to the people around him. And as the writer of Ecclesiastes looks at this, he says, guys, it's Hebel. It's Hebel. I've invested my life into work, but at the sacrifice of the people who love me the most. You know, I've, I've spoken to a lot of young men and a lot of young women in my office. None of them have come into my office and said, you know, my dad never bought me a car on my 16th birthday. Never heard that story. I have heard a lot of young men and women that are in their 20s, 30s, and 40s say, my father wasn't even there on my 16th birthday that though I may have built a fortune and provided for my family, what they want is your presence. And listen, that doesn't mean that work doesn't matter or what you provide doesn't matter. But if what you provide replaces your identity as a father or as a worshiper, as a disciple, as one who is in the body of Christ, see then the writer of Ecclesiastes says, you missed it. You climbed a ladder that's against the wrong wall. And so here's, here's where I wanna land this, two, two ideas. How do we restore joy to our work? Well, the first solution is we need one rather than two. And then the second solution is we need two rather than one. So the first solution is one rather than two. So again, jump back to that beginning section. And he says in verse six, better is a handful of quietness than notice two handfuls of toil. Better is a handful of quietness, so if you've got one handful of quietness, what's in the other hand? Toil. Work is good. But see, work isn't your identity. Your identity doesn't come from the hand that has work in it. Your identity comes from the hand that's open to the Father. This hand is called the Sabbath hand. This hand is called the work hand. Both are good. But see, when the work hand dominates the Sabbath hand, he's saying, listen, all you got is two hands of work. But see, when you got a hand of quietness, what's a hand of quietness? It's the hand that listens. And see, as a church, as disciples of Christ, the first thing we wanna be is to be with Jesus. What does that require? Are you listening to the Father? You know, this morning, it's interesting. I got here this morning and I was stressed, okay? I get here kind of early because I know I'm always gonna show up anxious. So I gotta get here about 5.45. Now, last week it was 6.45 because we didn't have an eight o'clock. So if you wanna be like eight o'clock services, we got them back. It's eight o'clock now. So anyways, I was here at 5.45 and usually what I do is I spend about an hour and a half just reading this thing over so I know it, got a path. This morning, I'm like, you know what? The Lord just said, just, just trust me. I'm like, no, (laughs) people are showing up. Listen, they don't want me to trust you. (laughs) They want me to be good. (laughs) You know what I mean, you're laughing and that's making me more nervous (laughs) up here because you're like, he's not very good. (laughs) Anyway, uh, and it was just like, and he just kept, I kept holding that, that, you know, my notes and he's like, no, listen, I just want you to trust me. So usually what I do is I kind of walk around the building and just kind of pray and I just took that hour and a half just to listen to listen and say, Father, what is it you wanna say? Now, I could spend another hour and a half with toil, and maybe things are gonna work out well, but see, when you take quietness, when you take listening, and see, you know what's also in this hand, it's not just the intimacy with the Father, it's community, it's relationships. It's the people that God, listen, has strategically placed in your life to deal with the problem that you have in your life that you're turning to the Father to fix. But you won't ask the people around you or listen to the people around you. God has already, what if he's already given you the people right now in your life that you need to rely upon, but see, we're so busy with work, we're not willing to listen. That's my marriage right there. That's my story. Because he goes on to say, and if you notice, so first of all, one hand is better than two. Because you need that hand of quietness. Because see, from that hand of quietness comes your identity. It comes direction, comes the voice of the Father. But then second, two are better than one. And that's where we see this section in verse nine. Notice he says, two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall... One will lift up his fellow, but woe to him who is alone, for when he falls, he stays alone. How many people do not know, if you fell today, who would be there to comfort you? See, often for many of us, we don't want anyone to know that we fell. And you know what that's destined to repeat? Falling. Because see, it's community. When community comes around us, it keeps us from falling in the patterns that we are used to falling. And now literally in the text, he's saying falling into pits because that's what was happening back in the day. Those people were traveling along, they fell into pits. And when you fell into a pit in the middle of nowhere, some of you know this because you've hiked out in those areas. And when you're out by yourself, it's not real wise because if something happens, you're stuck. And he's saying community is that support that helps us to get through the pits of life. And if we're working and toiling and we don't have people in our life, and now, let me say, people in your life that know you, that know your pits, that know where you fall, that know where you struggle, and you allow them to speak into your life, because see, two is better than one. And often what work does is it isolates us from others. And certainly if you get a little success, a little success, what it tends to tell you is I'm good in everything. If I'm good in money and I'm good in building a business, then I must be good in relationships. I'm sorry, it doesn't work that way. It just doesn't. But we buy it, don't we? We buy it. Because we think two hands of toy. Hey, look at what I'm doing for you, honey. Look at how hard I'm working. Look, look world, at all the stuff I'm accomplishing. And the father's saying, no, I just want you to listen to me, son. You know, Jesus, think of Jesus. We know about three years of his life. What did he do for 30? He was a carpenter. Doesn't that bring glory to our work? Jesus spent the majority of his life working. But Jesus did not spend the majority of his life alone. Jesus was in community with others. Because one of the uniqueness about the Christian God is that God is in community within himself. I know it's nuts, it's called the Trinity. It's beautiful, I'm not saying the Trinity's nuts, I'm just saying as a pastor, it's hard to get your mind around. Because God exists in community, he is Father, he is Son, he is Holy Spirit. And what has God been doing from eternity past? He has been giving and receiving love. Imagine that, before he created you, God in himself, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, was giving and receiving love, giving and receiving glory. What is a relationship with God? It's God inviting us into what he's been doing within himself for eternity. That's good right there, you should write that one down. (laughs) That's a cool one. Do you realize what that is? That you weren't reconciled to God to be reconciled to God and be happy. You were reconciled to God so that you could be reconciled to the world and others. And that's when you'll be happy. See, within Western Christianity, we take the same concept of work and we apply it to our salvation. The salvation is just about me and Jesus and Jesus getting me somewhere. Listen, Jesus is glad he's going to get you somewhere. But you're not going there alone. He didn't just redeem you to be right with the Father. No, he redeemed you, and being right with the Father, what it does is it puts in our heart a desire to be right with each other. And to be right with each other means I gotta be right with my work, because see, if my work runs over my neighbor, there's something wrong with my work. And I need to reevaluate what I'm trying to get out of what I do. Now, I don't know what that means for you. You gotta apply that yourself. Now, let me close with this thought. And I wish, you know, Hollywood's remaking movies, right? It's like they've lost ideas. There's no more new ideas out there. And so if we could get them to redo Chariots of Fire, it would help me as a preacher bringing relevant illustrations. Because Chariots of Fire, I mean, we're going old, old school, it's even beyond me. But Harold Abrams, Eric Liddell. I, I couldn't find any other story but this. Uh, they're both uh, running in the Olympics, it's in China. I don't know when, What the, and this is a true story. And Harold Abrams is talking to Eric Liddell. they're both runners, the bro sprinters, and he looks at Eric and he says, "You know what, in an hour, I'm going to have about 10 seconds to justify my existence." Ooh. How many of you is that Monday morning? I'm waking up to go to work to justify my existence to prove that I am worthy." That's Harold Abrams. And when he ran, he ran for the verdict: Eric Liddell. Eric Liddell was talking to his sister and said, listen, sister, I don't know if he said listen, sister, <laughs> but he said, God has made me for China and God has made me fast. And when I run, I feel God's pleasure. He's running because he has the verdict. Let me ask you, when you're working, are you working for verdict or are you working because you have verdict. You are my son, you are my daughter, and whom I love with you, I am well pleased. The good news of the gospel is the verdict comes at the beginning. It comes at the beginning. That when we receive Jesus Christ into our life, we receive the Father, and the Father sees us as if we had done everything that Jesus had done. So that when we go out at the door, we go out to please the Father, in the pleasure of the Father, to do what the Father's created us to do, to glorify him and to bless our neighbor. That's a different story. But listen, it's the story that leads to joy. It's the story that leads to joy. Let me pray for us. Father, as I look out um, across this room, the talent, the abilities, the skills, the vision, In this room, Father, you have blessed us with talents in just every single area of life. And yet, Father, do we have the wisdom to listen? Father, the wisdom to listen to you, not just to that voice within us that's trying to recover something, that's trying to recover home and prove that we're good enough, but rather to set that aside and through the cross of Jesus Christ to say, Father, I've pursued with two hands. And Lord, I wanna give one hand back to you. And so, Holy Spirit, would you enable us through the humility that comes from you just to lay those, those burdens down, to ask for your forgiveness. And Father, to see our work and what you've given us as an opportunity to glorify you And Father, to bless those around us, guide us into this truth we ask in Jesus' name, amen.